Hey. Hey, how's it going? Good. Can you hear me well? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Wonderful. So we're joined by uh, Derek Kwan and Sai. This is Zena Baltaki. Sai. Hey. So I want Derek. to welcome everybody to uh, Midnight Monday number two. This is a special event for Art Music Lit Space. Uh, we have um, Sai and Zena who are going to be presenting uh, tonight. Um, so I think I will hand it over to Sai, who has a, a performance plan for the evening. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was that was awesome. Thanks. So now we're going to uh, hand it over to Zena, who has a presentation that she's prepared. Um, so uh, if I could just introduce Zena. Um, Thai had previously participated in the opening reception for After Before, and uh, this is Zena's first time uh, uh, working with Art Music Lit Space. So let me just share a little bit about her work. Um, she's an artist and educator. Uh, she was born in Stockton and raised between California and Lebanon. Her work explores and exposes the tensions within identity and social politics. Uh, so with that, I'll hand it over to Zena. Thank you, Tavares. 
Um, so I'm going to just start sharing my screen with you. Let's see. I have a little PowerPoint. And I'm just going to share about my work. Um, so, yeah, I'm an artist. I just graduated from UC Davis. I also came out of Cal State Northridge from undergraduate degree. And I took a good, like, six years off in between and kind of, like, tried to figure myself out. And so this is just a conclusion pretty much as of last week. Um, so let's see where I'm at. I need to not share, stop share, and then make this actually go here, I think. How do I do that? Share. Thank you for uh, listening to me. So everything can hear me? Does everything look good on your end? Okay, sounds good. So um, basically, why did I choose Davis, California? And why did I choose to go to grad school? I had a big turning point where I needed to like excavate my, my past and like um, go back to childhood. Um, and I started with a reflection to my childhood home. Um, and I thought like this would be a good opportunity for me to look into my own history with mobility because it still affects with me till, till this day. And this is my home in Stockton, California, um, post 9-11-2001. Um, 9-11-2001 was a very significant moment. I turned 13 years old. It was my birthday. Uh, overnight within that moment, the political landscape of America also changed around me. And at that same moment, um, I was also undergoing an experimental knee, tibia, and like femur, titanium, endoprosthetic replacement. Um, it was due to uh, childhood cancer. So it was very like big culminating day. And I was asleep the entirety of the day of 9-11. Um, but what is important is the days after, I had to relearn how to walk within my new limitations, including a new sexualized form being 13, and an exoticized form as a teenager, a new political landscape, a new leg, um, and a whole new environment now visible from a different bodily perspective. And this is also like where I discovered my mobility as a means of being connected with and vulnerable to others. I, when you're in a hospital for over a year, you're very hyper aware of like all the kids around you and you're a kid and you're, and you're empathic, you share a room with other children. And so, um, this vulnerability and connection with other children just like became very real at a young age and it just billowed from there. Um, from this recollection, I started with a large turning point in my life when I realized my full utter vulnerability to my surroundings and the differences of my life inside and outside the home, the maneuvering I had to do to mobilize myself on both ends of that sidewalk. And I think a lot about collective memory and material and connected histories in my work. At this time, there was a collective fear the very moment um, the, the U.S. realized it is also vulnerable with heightened fear to every person of the Swana region, second leading after, uh, specifically the white U.S. actually. I thought about um, being 12 and turning 13, getting prep surgery, and as the Twin Towers were hitting, the nurses were like muting the television and waking up the day after. 
um, the day after there were a constant news um, of uh, mur murders and the murder of Balbir Singh Sodi really stood out to me. He was a Sikh American gas station owner, which led to a string of other murders. And um, this also made me within that moment, like made me realize how um, on a cultural level, how this thing that I, that was very specific to the Arab region, the was tied to other people within other regions, regardless of association with Islam. So clearly what I realized within that moment is regardless of what my faith is, there is this like notion sometimes that you get question of, are you Muslim, the closer, um, you get through generations but the more we soften our indigenous edges it gives us the illusion that we're walking closer to safety um that we're walking closer to whiteness but no matter what i believe the racial construct started to adopt muslim as a member of in a construct therefore it's sub therefore it's subject to privileges and ramifications of upward mobility and as we try to exist within the state i started to relate that to like jewish mobility and a lot of other immigrant mobility um, and this is just a vision board from last year. And I started exploring the kafea as a material itself. Um, so I'm just gonna go into some history of what a kafea is. There's other names for a kafea, like a hata, a shafea, shamach, um, and other names. And the kafea is a scarf that was originally worn on the heads of agricultural workers, mostly men, to protect them from the sun in Southwest Asia. It is believed by some that the kafea goes um, all the way back thousands of years to ancient Mesopotamia, and you can see it worn by Arabs, the Syrian Kurds, Iranians, of varied ethnic backgrounds, and others today. And its symbology has grown in significance, and I've realized that the political significance today, although the kafea is used by like political parties, varied ethnic religion backgrounds, and also made of different materials, um, the black and white kafea was primarily at some point associated with the Palestinian liberation movement and the Arab revolt of the 1930s against the occupation of Palestine by Great Britain. It is a distinctive moment and I use the specific, use the specific, the kafea specifically as this unifying symbol of the Swana region. I like to think of the material as fascinating and its transformation to a utilitarian male gendered object rising up the ranks into different class systems from labor to royalty, from gender exclusivity to gender neutralness and to a cultural symbol of resistance. So like the material meaning of the cafe has shifted and from something that is very utilitarian to more of a symbolic object. And even though each cafe seems like they're all the same, um, they are similar, which unites them together, but the unique in its material makeup and pattern to every region. And, and also in which way you wear the headdress. Um, I like to think of the kafea sometimes as a crown worn like in the battle for human rights. Um, and as it's shifted uh, from like a utilitarian object of labor to royalty, you could see them made from like um, cotton to silk to wool, depending on the region. Um, this is an exploration I did um, last year, exploring the marketplace uh, as, as, as like very similar to like the marketplace in like um, LA, and that's where I'm at right now. Um, 
so you could like associate to like the Korean marketplace or the Latino marketplace. There's definitely like a, a Swana marketplace that is a community-based place that needed to be addressed. Um, and then I started going to like, okay, how was the cafe of Warren? It was worn in Lebanon, in Syria. Um, and then I significantly put this moment in there because this is Syria in the wake of the revolution at the border of Lebanon awaiting entrance and like it was right after the revolution turned into a bloodbath and um, although like Lebanon does welcome refu refugees, their relationship with refugees, I could find it very similar to America in which the border here between um, Central America and, and America to the Lebanon's relationship with refugees is also tumultuous in this in that state. Um, so these are things that I excavate like within both nations. Um, and then I started to think how did the cafe started to move and change in meaning? Well, as the military started to move into the Middle East America, um, you could see uh, it started to get appropriated into military and hunting fashion. Um, and at some point was turned into like a festival play suit. And I started to follow like how the transformation of the cafe, I could follow it very similar to like the Jewish, the Jewish talent where very similarly trying to assimilate closer, the objects that are very symbolic and meaningful also get diluted and appropriated and um, changed. Um, so there's this material information so there's this material information that happens on a physical level and a symbolic level. And what I'm pointing to is that change of material meaning and those layers of that information. And I'm pointing this um, chart out in the theory of uh, racialized organizations by Victor Ray. Um, I was studying a lot with Professor Bruce Haynes in the sociology department at Davis. And he shared with me this chart that I truly felt was like an important very clear chart to share as it speaks to the concepts in the um, it speaks to it speaks to the concept concepts in which um, immaterial ideas lead to tangible results and that I also want to think how on um, materials also have um, uh, memory and immaterial um, ideas within them um, So what we don't know um, at some point, like I've been told often is what we don't know, what we don't know, but like um, I'm trying to figure out like, um, okay, I, I don't know many things, but how can I bridge that gap? How can I figure out um, and, and find out information through material? And um, so I started to explore the sidewalk as well as the uh, cafe as this thing that has that I walk on that has the, all of this information within it. And these are protests much uh, previous to the protests that are happening today. Um, uh, and then I started to explore like artists as well um, and find artists that also use the sidewalk. So like Dred Scott, Adrian Piper, Laura Aguilar, Pope L, Osco, Harry Gamboya Jr., they've all channeled the sidewalk within the history within it in some form. Um, on the right was a very uh, 
a big moment for me when I when, when I I saw it um, and I, I saw that I thought I was like I, I just um, you know, and you just wish that you saw something earlier, and you're just like, oh, this is amazing. Um, and then I was the performance artist of Pope L in 1991, where he crawled around the perimeter of, of, of Tompkins Square Park in New York. Um, and I just imagine the, um, uh, the information that's channeled um, within that crawl as well. Um, sorry. <laughs> So I'm going to arrive to this point of I'm spinning, where the sidewalk and the cafe started to merge together. Um, so I was reading and discussing uh, the work of Valerie Thomas, a scholar of African diaspora studies at Pomona College. And Professor Thomas introduced me to her own concepts of African diaspora vertigo as a method of healing and decolonizing the psyche. and um, and what Professor Thomas looks at is Black vernacular culture and home as structured by the liminal space of the crossroads archetype. So um, all, all, all the crossroads coming together and the related and relating these concepts. Um, and I started relating these concepts to uh, a social precarity. So the ideas of like, so the, the, the idea of what's happening is that it's putting a vernacular spin on what like um, Judith Butler has also spoken of within is uh, vertigo as both a sign of like colonial dislocation and disorientation and um, using ancient methodologies of healing, um, healing in order to like decolonize all of that. And it evokes this continuum vernacular experience and knowledge available to mediate contemporary experiences um, uh, as a whole, however, creating like this diasporic rupture so that it could create recovery. Um, so essentially what I'm, it's aiming to do is to find the equilibrium in like the spiritual freefall of all of the crossroads of, of all at once of who you are as you walk in space. And there was an aha moment that like came to me. Um, and within this piece actually is so essentially it's just two large pieces of sidewalk on top of each other with a steel lazy Susan in the middle and the sidewalk spins in place. And it was like a big aha moment that I realized that there's room in our heads for all of this. Um, so there's room in our heads for like essentially like um, all parts of who you are as you walk through space. Um, so there's room for all these crossroads to be looked at and discussed simultaneously because that's how we essentially uh, present ourselves. Um, so here in both reclaiming yet morbidly mourning the erasure of the heavy swana symbology and the use of the cafeas, the cafeas were suffocated and layered under the, you could say like the cafeas were suffocated and layered under the industrial complex of city planning. Um, it's pretty straightforward as political comment on a macro scale. Um, but what I'm metaphorically speaking to on a micro scale are the small micro erasures of the self. So, um, I am losing my track. I am so sorry. So I'm just gonna like put all this away and wing it. So, 
within this piece, I lay I layered the the cafes in them and started creating this cul-de-sac um, within all of these symbols in there. Um, and I started to think how, as my personal level as a Middle East woman, how um, we essentially, when you come in America, you're kind of like trading the revolutionary, the resistance that we had back home for essentially a cul-de-sac um, or a more, or, or a, 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 the idea of assimilation in the American dream. And this piece is called Trip Hazard, essentially uh, using way, wayfinding signs, concrete, and um, the cafes. So within this part, I would love to speak to you about um, Peter Osborne. Um, the idea of the site and the non-site that could be used for semantic operations. Um, so essentially, um, a sidewalk just needed to be broken down into little bits and shattered um, because the information will be carried on regardless, uh, whether it be in a base photograph. So no matter how much this gets, um, removed, the information will still be there. Um, so moving forward, as I was thinking about the cul-de-sac, I was looking for an installation for this cul-de-sac and it ended up being within the garden wrapped around this bay tree. And um, when I was given the location, I was given uh, this bay tree, I thought of Daphne and, and which Daphne and Apollo, the story, Apollo really wanted Daphne and Daphne went to her father, the river god and said, um, would you turn me into a tree rather than marry Apollo? And so her father turned her into a bay tree and Apollo in return, uh, took her limbs and turned them into wreaths and put them on her head, on his head. And that was like a huge decoration within Greek mythology. Um, so within that illusion, I was, as I think about the cul-de-sac, I think about essentially as the space that was created so that it could dis politically disengage people um, from what's happening outside of like the, 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 the bubble of the neighborhood. It created um, the idea of hysteria for white women. It created um, the, the, the aspirations of the American dream um, for immigrants and is a place also that's completely inaccessible to, or not complete, but is, is not accessible and um, not available to black folks. So within this, there's just layers of access and privilege that I needed to address. At some point I decided to walk across the sidewalk because essentially my mobility is tied onto the backs of others um, and which made me super 
I became very hyper aware of that after my studies and research over the past few years, um, or really decade or 15 years of trying to grapple with figure figure what's happening my place and what's happening around me um and the space that i take up and how my mobility is tied to others in a vulnerable state um but also uh is is attached to it uh, upwardly and there's things to like think about within that so if you'd like to like hear more you can email me <laughs> sorry thank you for hearing my presentation. Um, if Liz, you have any questions you could ask, I kind of blubbered a little bit, apologize. Yeah, um, thank you so much for sharing that, that was amazing. Because yeah. that was um, a, a lot of intenseness, um, but I, I could, yeah. Do that for a moment. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's intense, yeah. but like, when you make work that um, is so connected to like identity and we're not really removed from identity. You know, I think, I think some people have the privilege of removing themselves from identity because they have a veil uh, between the self and a presentation of the self. Whereas some people in, in culture and society do not have that veil because they exist as pretty much the way uh, they look to a certain degree. And when you make work that is political or socially motivated, uh, it, it gets intense, you know? And so I'm, I'm really happy to see this powerful work and this, such a critical investigation of material and identity and culture. So I'm very, very happy to have that be shared here tonight. I appreciate you listening to it. Um, it was definitely a strange, not strange, but like this buildup as I'm working through it and then COVID-19 and then this very large movement that is I'm so necessary <laughs> um, for it to continue growing and for us to like keep our feet on the ground. Um, but it definitely a, a huge like jar within of like, holy shit, all these things are right here <laughs> as well and it's become it's become so much even more clear um how much uh we need to continue researching every single one of us on like an individual level but this was how i went about my art i guess the the the, the art with research for things yeah mm -hmm. definitely need to constantly like excavate this in order to manifest future me's um so, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think it's um, really interesting because it's like, I've been working really closely with uh, Derek Kwan, uh, one mm -hmm. of the curators, and Joy Miller over the last uh, several months. And so, like, in, within the, you know, the process of working together, we went from, like, trying to address uh, COVID-19 and social uh, restrictions and global pandemic and meeting the moment as uh, artists and curators uh, presenting, you know, uh, an event gallery exhibition space online to like, oh shit, like there's fires burning, uh, more black people are being killed uh, by police officers. Um, now we have like- outside, like straight up. 
Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> all of that, you know, so it's like, yeah. you know, so much changes so fast. And, uh, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you meet that moment now? You know, or, or how, how can you meet a moment when everything's changing so fast around you? Uh, yeah. but, uh, I think, I think like, go yeah. ahead. Yeah. I think that's like the beautiful thing as an artist though, is that you could, you're kind of like, you work towards it and within it. And sometimes like you, you hit a note and, and, and you prepare yourself for the moment without realizing it mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah. You know? how do you feel about that sometimes where do you do you come to like a uh, research or some things that you've even written earlier in your career that you'll f- pull out later and you're like and you that you didn't fully digest even though you may have looked at it and then a moment happens and you're like it starts to fully digest like it's you, mm-hmm. you become you become confronted with it in a very real way yeah, I think like I was uh, for a long time, I was dealing with um, uh, police brutality in my work because I was, you know, directly yeah. addressing like the death of or the murder of Trayvon Martin and the murder of Mike Brown mm-hmm. and how, uh, you know, yeah, in one case, uh, you know, specifically Trayvon Martin, it's, it's a civilian killing uh, someone, an unarmed black youth and in other cases it's like police officers either killing uh young black men or uh using you know brutal tactics to arrest them um and then in 2016 i was arrested um during uh the summer between my first and second year at uc davis uh so like i really had to confront like my conceptions about what it meant to be not only black in america but uh also um, uh, someone who talks about what it is like to yeah. deal with police officers to someone who has to uh, bail himself out of jail in the middle of an yeah. MFA program. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think we all come to our own realizations in our own time. Um, but like you said, I'm hoping that, you know, all of us, uh, well, I'm hoping that people who are dedicated to justice and quality and equitability uh, in our, in our culture, you know, within our government and our society, we'll continue to, you know, work for, fight for, and desire yeah. these things because it, it affects everybody, you know, yeah. just because you might not be affected now doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. You know, oh, yeah. it means that you're next probably <laughs> white supremacy doesn't wait for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, and until yeah, until um, the most oppressed are free, none of us are. Like, it's just the truth. But, yeah. Right. But, um, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Who's coming up next? Or I don't know how much time I've taken up. Wait, it's like Well, that's, that's our program for uh, tonight. Uh, I did want to, um, me and Derek did want to ask a few questions because we are in the process of... Um, setting up programming for a future exhibition, uh, which is um, in the books for, I think, October, November. So Art Music Lit Space is a virtual exhibition uh, platform where, you know, we uh, curate these exhibitions, 
uh, artwork and artist information goes online at artmusiclit.space. Uh, we have uh, opening and closing receptions. We started this special event, Midnight Mondays. Uh, we're reaching out to other platforms like posting videos on Vimeo, posting audio on SoundCloud. We have a podcast, but we're curious about um, how uh, artists feel in, in this culture, this culture of uh, physical distancing, this culture of Zoom, uh, this culture of, uh, let's say, like protests now, and the fact that most galleries are either closed or are beginning to reopen. But the question is, like, how do we re-enter that space of culture uh, with, with masks, with protest signs, uh, guarded. Um, so yeah, I want to open up to participants tonight, as well as attendees. You can unmute yourself. Uh, I'd like to have kind of an open conversation now. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, virtual experience in the arts? And what are your plans to re-enter the space of culture? Well, I agree to all of the above in which wear masks. Um, the revolution doesn't stop. No. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Derek, did we? I guess like, I was curious about like, how, um, like, how being forced, I guess, to maybe confront virtual spaces more how does it affect how you go about your art? Like, uh, I guess, like, sorry, you know, we collaborate online, online a lot, and maybe it wouldn't have been so fruitful of collaboration if we haven't, if we hadn't been forced to, like, uh, be in, like, being, like, in the shelter in place sort of environment. Yeah. Like, I think even like what I played today was also in the pursuit of just uh, like what I can do online and you know, what is the best I can do. So what you guys saw today was also like an uh, attempt in that direction using it because all this technology has been lying around for so long. And today it's just that it is like a desperate time. That's why everybody's using it. Like now we have to, there's no other way, but this has been there for more than a decade, two decades. So, I mean, in a way the people are getting more aware of the things they use like machines the computers the phones like what is the possibility like these are the things that went to moon these are the similar kind of machines that are going to mars so we can like make more this is a good opportunity in a way for everybody to explain uh, like you know expand their toolkit to the needs kind of thing yeah and i think you know the needs are evolving you know yeah. and I think the fact that the technology has been available for decades just means that, you know, perhaps America and its privilege got a little bit ahead of itself, you know, like we're used to, you know, going to the beach with thousands of people, not to say that I do do that. I mean, I've gone to beaches, but you know, if I look at a photograph of Florida during the pandemic, and I see all those people um, and the potential to spread the virus. Uh, when I think about like eating in public or 
going to movies or even just being in the gallery kind of shoulder to shoulder with people, um, you know, you have to wonder like, do we get a little bit ahead of ourselves in, in our privilege or in our haste to, uh, you know, be, be in the moment. And, uh, you know, if, if we're, we're finally like addressing means of communication with decades old technology, uh, what does that really say about us as a culture? It's good, like we're in the moment that we didn't, uh, we're not, we didn't, we're not so dependent on machines and stuff. It's good, it's a good thing, like we're too, and it should stay that way. But that said, like, I feel like um, we still, like, there's a balance that needs, like, uh, it's getting there in a way, like, how much people, there are still, like, people control their usage of phone. Obviously, there are people who can't, but at the same time, overall, by and by, you, you come across people who can use control. It is just being aware of the possibilities that is there and like using it to the efficient usage of technology rather that's the best way to put it i'm not saying like and you know go over and above we should so like it's good like we are using uh people have been away from it for so long but now i guess we will just be more efficient with our work kind of thing do you think, i know go ahead Derek. do you think uh virtual spaces like if like maybe like tomorrow everything just went back to quote unquote normal, you think a virtual spaces would have like a place now that like we are aware of it? I mean like virtual spaces, I mean, this is what I think. Like virtual yeah. spaces, are <clears throat> like when you want to go to a park, you want to go to a park. When you want yeah. to play in a specific video game, you want to play in a specific video game. Like it's, uh, these guys are like, you know, so we're trying to like to stimulate parks and stuff. Again, virtually, I don't know if it gets that good or if it gets that good. But it is just like, it's just that two independent feelings. Some people have like pestered themselves and like, you know, trained themselves for getting used to virtual feelings over the real one. Like, but uh, I mean, that's just, uh, I, I don't know what to say for some people. In that. But in that's the way I look at it is just they're two different places. Some days, I, you know, you want to play a game or watch a movie, like, you know, be in that space. Some days you want to be outside in that space, in a certain space. So I don't, uh, I, just, I just feel like out, after this, people will just be more aware of the possibilities and just like, you know, what can be done. It's a good, like, opener in that way. I'm sticking on the positives, like, given the situation. <laughs> I can agree. I can agree that I definitely agree that it's expanding everyone's way of thinking of what, of how they go about their work um, on all fronts and how they live. Uh, it's interesting, yeah, because like the although the internet has been here for a while, um, I, I think that it's it's interesting how um, people. Uh, it, you can die from your privilege now in a way that is very specific to like a pandemic COVID where it's like, as Travaris was speaking, where and people, I was thinking of how pe when people go, go out into the beach <laughs> um, and put yourself at risk, like there's a very specific risk that you could actually die from your own privilege. How just thinking how within this expansion of like how we, address the virtual realm of like but at that same token 
we'll always as humans need physical touch we'll always need to like have the sun ray i need the sun to shine on my face <laughs> and we'll need to like go outside our homes and have that human contact regardless um so regardless of how virtual we get we'll still need each other <laughs> like that part can't be dismantled um but yeah, I, I think it's it's a scary thing that you could there was a, die from a in many ways, yeah. That is an interesting uh, kind of term to use because I think it's sure. like very much apropos. Uh, yeah. I think people don't think that, uh, you know, those who may be maybe not using as much protective measures as others, um, there was... Um, Speaking of that uh, kind of privilege, um, Shake Shack was in the news because after the PPP loans uh, had been administered by the SBA, Shake Shack um, had controversially accepted like multi-million dollar loans, even though they were a you know three-figure million you know million uh, you know semi-multinational uh, corporation and they recently opened a, a location in Sacramento and there's like a photograph in the SAC B uh, outside of the Shake Shack on June 18th and it's just like uh, it looked bigger than the Trump's rallies overflow outside <laughs> I mean like, yeah. like so, that's a joke but there's like a lot of there's like a lot of people outside waiting to get into Shake Shack and a you know, there's, there's, you know, masks here and there, but, you know, there's, it's like a smattering of people without masks and uh, with masks and, you know, people waiting for, you know, burgers, you know, basically yeah. in, in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, and <laughs> how do we feel that globally in other parts of the world, they've actually already moved through the pandemic um, and they have denser populations than the U.S.? So, yeah, that's really interesting. Like so much uh, fear mongering was, you know, happening in U.S. media about what was happening in Italy. You know, yeah. and you look at the figures, it's like, yeah, they closed down and they had like all these strict um, government sanctions on uh, mobility within uh, society. But, you know, their death toll is like 34,000. But, you know, America, like we're like, you know, I even know. staunchly it's opening with like yeah. 120,000 people dead. Yeah. You know, so it's like, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. the, you know, the kind of big question we're curious about is like some people that we're working with already and, you know, it's, it's a major kind of uh, practice unto itself uh, to work in the virtual realm, to work either as a, a web-based artist or a virtual artist, a digital artist, a lot of um, sound artists who work um, with um, acousmatic work, you know, basically present their sound art online on platforms like SoundCloud and Bandcamp. But, you know, Zena, uh, how do you feel about uh, the virtual space? Is it is it kind of like uh, a, a realm in which you would think about exhibiting or? Uh... Um, I think the simply my face in front of the camera gives me anxiety a little bit. 
Definitely feeling like cam girl vibes. Like every time I do. Because <laughs> no matter how I set it up, it just ends up looking like bedroom cam girl. <laughs> Even in the most serious situations. Um, and I do think there's a huge advantage to the virtual space is allows for more voices. Uh, the art world is very hierarchical and elitist as to who gets heard. Um, and I think as artists, we get tied in often into, um, shows, especially when you're emerging, where you don't get to fully express your full voice and or your full thought. And the virtual space is lending to that. And it's allowing for just, it's always existed. It's the basic pen pal. You get to. Oh, Sorry. Into the classroom and being able to invite visiting artists into like um, the classroom last quarter was really um, a huge, awesome part of the class that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. Because otherwise, you have to pay someone to come visit, you have to board them up, and then they have to, you know, do the thing. And it's much easier to just zoom into their studio. <laughs> um, there, there is it allows for more in many different ways too. There is, a, yeah. I mean, like we we said, we said, you know, we established, you know, that te the technology, the framework of the technology has been here a while, but definitely there is a paradigm shift to real time uh, virtual uh, happening as opposed to pre recorded events. Uh, uh, I know, like I worked in e learning for five years at Sacramento State University. And we recorded everything and it was disseminated to cable. So it was recorded and broadcast later. And e-learning students would access the recordings not in real time. Um, they would basically do it on their time. So there is a shift now to uh, the real time happening, which um, prior to uh, universities going virtual, I had read an article on CCA. Uh, it was a really interesting article that had pointed out several uh, ways that educators could go about uh, virtual instruction. And the main point was that there there should not be real-time virtual instruction. Um, but it seems that... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how realistic that is. Um, That's the way it had always been done. Yeah. Um, but it's like, especially during a pandemic and, you know, students losing their jobs or having to be at home, you know, in difficult situations. For example, like my partner Elizabeth had to take a six hour painting class uh, on Saturday at home, you know, so she's like on the front porch and she's in the bedroom and she's in the backyard and she's moving all around the three kids and the dog and the cat and me and uh had the class been pre-recorded she could have just watched the lecture done her work and emailed in her images but yeah um now you know there's so much of, of what we do even even during a pandemic has to do with visibility and accountability yeah. which i think in a culture where everyone has a camera that's just the case um seems like this could be an interesting shift and what gets filed and what doesn't. Uh, like, um, I, don't know, I went to school for percussion 
and that's something that's really kind of you can't pre-record as well like um like getting like feedback working with the teacher like oh you're doing this right you're doing this wrong like I mean, maybe this, uh, this is how you should approach it like which doesn't really work in a pre-recorded sort of thing yeah i definitely we need to figure out a more yeah. sustainable model yeah. where like the parts that um can be expressed should just be pre-recorded i do think there's a significance to the check-in that you're alluding to with music that is a part of like drawing classes too, being able to like walk behind someone and just like be like that corner right there <laughs> brighten that up or bring that shadow it's like there's an immediacy that is not possible virtually um which could impede like growth on really long term it'd be, be interesting sure. to see to see like how universities respond to all this and like do they just like devalue like practices that need more immediacy or what happens there's been talk uh <laughs> in the university about like yeah. will some classes be on campus you know lab laboratory yeah. classes engineering nursing art students uh obviously some classes can be um virtual ironically political science uh well, criminal justice uh <laughs> i mean whereas you know like most some, any major yeah that doesn't have a lab <laughs> Of some yeah. Sort. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I think it's interesting because, like, at Art Music Lit Space, we're we're you know we're trying to figure out like ways in which we can best like serve and build a community, ways we can reach people that we wouldn't have access to had it not been for a virtual platform. Uh, I think like moving forward, you know, universities, uh, art spaces, galleries, museums, recital halls. Uh, presentation spaces are all going to be looking at like ways to you know kind of develop programming that you know serves the community yet at the same time uh, promotes uh, safety and definitely with so much business in America being affected uh, all across the globe people have been affected by the pandemic um, the big talk uh, in America is how it's affecting the economy. And I think that with so many businesses uh, losing their livelihood, um, I, th I think that a lot of people who uh, make it through the pandemic are gonna be thinking about sustainability in a way that they hadn't before. And so it'd be interesting to see how that that comes, comes out. So thank you for everyone for coming tonight. Thank you, Zena and Sai for participating. Those were amazing uh, presentations. Um, yeah. This concludes yeah. the Midnight Monday number two. Thanks for having me. I was glad. Yeah, great. So we're gonna be, um, so this is recorded tonight. We're going to uh, publish a video on Vimeo. They will be downloadable and the audio file will be on SoundCloud. I'll share those with both of you uh, once they're published. Okay. Uh, hope everyone had a good night and um, see you later. Yeah. See you guys. Yeah. Bye, thank you so much.